This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here, and we have yet another terribly interesting guest today, another gentleman, a traditional neurosurgeon, get this, neurosurgeon who has taken neurosurgery to a completely different level. And you folks may remember Dr. Caplet, where we talked about essential tremor. This gentleman is also from the same team that Dr. Caplet is on with the Weill Cornell Medical Brain and Spine Center in New York City. And he's going to talk to us about how he uses, get this, non-invasive techniques to deal with such maladies as subdural hematoma. He's basically going to tell us how he gets into the brain and fixes it without actually having to open the brain up. So interesting. Dr. Jared Knopman, thank you so much for coming on board. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dr. Parker. So I'm going to introduce Dr. Knopman to you, and uh, we'll go from there. So before I give you the full introduction, I do want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, and that is Core Brain Journal is sponsored by Great Plains Laboratory. They are a deep international biomedical testing leader for improved targeted mind science details. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data, their measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond guesswork. They also provide multiple training webinars for both the public and medical providers on how to use that biomedical data effectively. Check out their website for references and testing details and take note, you can register for a complimentary test drawing this week, an organic acid test, oats, uh, 75 specific answers from a simple urine sample at greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ. Great Plains Laboratory is fanatic.com forward slash CBJ for Core Brain Journal. So there we go. Dr. Knopman is a neurosurgeon who specializes in the treatment of vascular diseases of the brain and spine. He is one of the few neurosurgeons in New York City with dual expertise in both neurosurgical as well as minimally invasive interventional techniques for the treatment of neurologic disease. This affords him a unique perspective in determining the optimal treatment for each individual patient's needs while employing the most cutting-edge technologies. And friends, this is definitely a cutting-edge experience here. So Dr. Knopman is board-certified neurosurgeon and interventional neuroradiologist who specializes in cerebrovascular disorders, including aneurysms, AVMs, brain tumors, and carotid occlusive disease. I have to ask you what an AVM was. I meant to get that straight before I started this. We'll, We'll talk in a second. So he has expertise in embolism of aneurysms, and AVMs, carotid stenting and endarterectomy, interarterial chemotherapy. He also performs spinal cord stimulation and microvascular decompression for chronic pain syndromes and trigeminal neuralgia. You know, we have a lot of listeners who are suffering with these kind of things. He is one of the few neurosurgeons in New York City with dual expertise in both open neurosurgical as well as minimally invasive interventional techniques for the treatment of various neurologic diseases, which affords him a unique perspective in determining 
the optimal treatment we said before for the, using the most cutting edge technologies. An important note is Dr. Noppen has been named to the Super Doctors Rising Star List, a distinction afforded to the top 2.5 physicians in his field. His expertise is widely sought, and he serves as a consultant to other neurosurgeons traveling the country to proctor them in advanced stenting techniques for complex aneurysms. So sorry to be not up on the AVM. Could you tell us what that means? Sure. I mean, AVM is, uh, is an arterial venous malformation. It's okay. a tangle of blood vessels in the brain that, that people are often born with, but sometimes don't recognize that they have until it bleeds or causes a seizure. So as a neurovascular surgeon, we take these out. We can embolize them. We can perform radio surgery, which is a zap radiation to treat them. They're relatively rare diseases in general, but something that we see a, a relatively large amount of. I'm a pretty good experience at Cornell treating them. See, it was funny because I always think of it as uh, arterial venous fistula. This is from so long ago. So AVM threw me on that one. But let's get into it's what... similar. It's similar, yeah. The issue is, let's take a moment to really just go ahead and get into what your real main issue is here. And that is your interest in the management of subdural hematoma without doing a craniotomy, without opening the brain up. I mean, to me, this is interesting. One of the things we found so interesting about uh, Dr. Caplet and Essential Tremor. So let's get, before we get to that part, I get a little excited. I want to talk about it. Let's get started with you, how you got interested in neurosurgery and, and what you began, what your interest was originally that took you down this path. Well, I always found the brain to be fascinating. It's obviously an interesting area. And, and, and throughout my training in medical school and even before that in, in undergraduate, I always wanted to study what made us unique as human beings. And to me, that always came back to being uh, the brain. You know, you brought up AVM before and aneurysm. And as I began to study neurosurgery, I began to see that there's a field in neurosurgery where open traditional surgical techniques meet sort of a minimally invasive endovascular techniques. And that, that really is in vascular neurosurgery, the blood vessels that go to the brain and the diseases that arise from them, like aneurysms and AVMs, there's oftentimes open traditional options, there's endovascular, minimally invasive options, and then there's this, this area of gray in the middle where there's equipoise between the two. And I think that it's in that area that I always found neurosurgery to be the most interesting. What makes a patient a better candidate for one option versus the other? And mm -hmm. I think that really requires dual expertise so that there's you know, no bias involved in treating a patient, and you can always really offer a very individualized treatment plan. So that's what drew me to neurosurgery, this ability to offer multiple different treatment options for really what a lot of people consider to be in, you know, some of the scariest things that they can come across. And being able to help somebody like that, give them an interventional treatment option that 20 years ago you would have to do open surgery on, that's really where I find the most gratitude and what I really love most about the field. Well, you know, you uh, said several things that I think were interesting because your, your language system, but what is endovascular surgery. What does that word mean? Endovascular means that we're working from within the blood vessels. So okay. interventional neuroradiology is essentially synonymous with endovascular neurosurgery. It's when we place catheters through little needle sticks into the arteries, and we're able to work from inside through literally just a needle stick. We're able to do things that, again, a decade or two, we would have to do a big incision on the head and make a window in the, in the bone 
and go in and do a major operative procedure, we can literally now do things through catheters the size of a piece of spaghetti, and patients will go home with you know, no scar, no pain, literally the next day after a procedure. So endovascular neurosurgery is this new field, uh, relatively new field in vascular neurosurgery that allows us to do things minimally invasively. And that's where subdural hematoma comes in, which uh, we'll get to. But we've come up with an endovascular treatment for a disease that up until now has always been treated with open surgery. Well, let's do talk about that because first of all, some of our audience may not even have the vocabulary to know what a subdural hematoma is. That's the first thing. And then after we get into that, uh, you know, my imagination, because I, I know where it is, I've seen them, I have an idea of what it is. But then, of course, my next professional, if you will, forgive it, the psychiatric is, how does one get into that brain without actually opening the skull? So let's start with the basics of, first of all, the acuity of an illness like that. So you have an acute illness, do you see people from out of town? I said that innocently. I know you do because you had a great story that I'd like to have you share with us about an individual who was injured indeed out of town. The reason I was so interested in, in pursuing it further is because it's a relatively acute type of intervention that you're talking about, and yet people do come from out of town to see you. So Number one, what was the injury? Tell us a little bit about that story and how you interceded on it. Well, subdural hematoma, to start with, is essentially a blood clot that builds up between the brain and the surface covering the brain, which is the dura. And oftentimes, these occur after traumas. And trauma doesn't have to be very major. It can be as, as severe as, as falling during a skiing accident. It could be as minor as hitting one's head on a cabinet. The issue with subdural hematomas is that they're generally, especially the less acute ones, they're more common in the elderly population. And essentially, as we all age, our brain begins to shrink away from the dura, that covering over it, and mm -hmm. the space becomes larger. And then that space is at risk of having a blood clot form in it, especially with minor trauma. And as we all get older, we begin to take things like aspirin, which is good for our heart. Some of us are on blood thinners for other reasons. And if you hit your head or you fall, you have a little bit of bleeding in that subdural space and you're on aspirin or a, another form of anticoagulation, another blood thinner, that subdural hematoma can go from being small to being very big. You're right that some subdural hematomas are acute problems and surgical emergencies. But where we've made the most headway with our minimally invasive option are the subacute and chronic subdural hematomas. Those hematomas that have probably occurred weeks or even months before. They were probably small and not having a major effect on the brain, but over time, they begin to grow. And as they grow slowly, they exert mass effect. They start pressing on the brain and causing problems in people. Maybe it's cognitive decline. Maybe it's an instability of their gait. Sometimes people have seizures, some minor weakness, some word-finding difficulties. But generally, the symptoms are slow but progressive. They're insidious, so they need to be addressed, but they also present themselves within a time window that we do have the opportunity to intervene in a urgent but not emergent fashion. And that's what enables patients to come from different parts of the country and get this treatment. It's something that they need to get addressed and needs to be fixed, but not something that they're deteriorating from in an emergent fashion. Well, when you said that word time window, that, that piqued my curiosity. So what is your standard there? I know my son does liver transplants out in, in L.A., so they have a whole window on 
on the organs and so on. So what's your thought about somebody coming from Kansas out to New York? What's the time window from an injury or some symptom? Pre- do, you, do you actually date it from the injury or d- date it from the symptom presentation? Date it typically from the symptom presentation and from the size of the subdural hematoma on, on scan and, and how that patient is doing and feeling clinically. It's, it's definitely individualized. The way we kind of conceived of this was the fact that, you know, traditionally we had always been taking these hematomas out with surgery. And what we found at surgery is that the blood within the subdural space, the hematoma itself, is always of mixed age. So there's components of the blood that have occurred a while ago, maybe at the original source of the injury. And then there's newer components of blood which are present that occur even without hitting one's head or or sustaining an injury again. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the subdural hematoma has a propensity to bleed and then stop, bleed and then stop. And this vicious cycle can continue for quite some time until it's interrupted. And when taking out these subdural hematomas at surgery, they're always surrounded by this membrane or this capsule. And that capsule is very friable, very oozy. It always has this little bit of, of ooziness of blood to it. And we would cauterize that with our surgical instruments and try to dry up the space. But Seeing this made me wonder if there was another option towards drying that region up and interrupting that vicious cycle, that bleeding and re-bleeding. And that's essentially the premise of what the embolization is. Mm-hmm. We interrupt this bleeding and re-bleeding cycle, and by doing that, allow the subdural hematoma to naturally re- be reabsorbed by the body over time, which would happen if the hematoma didn't continue to bleed and re-bleed. Oh, yes, I so see what somebody you're talking from, about, yeah. So if someone from across the country has this issue and they present their imaging and they're able to tell us how they feel, we can pretty much tell the rate with which they're declining and whether or not their body can tolerate the hematoma embolization procedure, which also requires further time for resorption. So the criteria that I generally employ when selecting these patients are those with mild to moderate symptoms, those who have symptoms that need to be addressed those who traditionally would be surgical and operative candidates for the past 50 years, but those who aren't declining or deteriorating in a rapid, dangerous fashion, because those patients do need more urgent surgical procedures to relieve the mass effect on the brain. That being said, the vast majority of patients who have subacute and chronic subdural hematoma don't decline in a rapid way. They decline in a progressive way, and they need something done, but they oftentimes have this time window to attempt this more minimally invasive option Mm -hmm. and see if surgery could be forestalled or prevented altogether. Well, Dr. Knappen, isn't it true also that when they're declining like that, uh, should they have another fall or another incident, that would turn it into an acute situation? I mean, they're they're really falling apart a little bit, but people then can get into denial. It's not that bad. But then there's a certain measure of and it's the reason we talk to people like you, because, you know, we need to have our vision set up so we have the right glasses on so we can see what's happening, because that person would be a significant liability, I guess. I'm guessing at that, so could you comment on that, please? It's true. Once someone starts manifesting symptoms from a subdural hematoma, it's basically your brain's way of telling you that it can't handle the blood clot there anymore. And it's not screaming at you in a way that says this needs to come out at this moment, but it's telling you something's wrong and something needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Another fall, another insult could push that over the edge and make things from becoming an urgent problem, which it is now, to an emergent problem that requires addressing immediately and, and, and with greater morbidity. There's no doubt about that. What's 
nice about embolizing these lesions is that by drying up the entire area, essentially the nidus, the source of this subdural hematoma that, that keeps it alive and keeps it rebleeding, by drying it up, you change the natural history, it appears, going forwards in a significant fashion. Because the hematoma won't just resorb over time if it doesn't rebleed again. But you dry up the area going forward so that your chances of it recurring or coming back, it appears, is also decreased. Mm-hmm. Subdural hematomas, even if they're treated with surgery, even if they have to come out, even in the best-case scenario, they have recurrence rates of about 10 to 15%, even up to 30% in some of the medical literature. And we've been applying this embolization procedure for really two sets of patients. Those who need, who traditionally would have needed surgery, but who can attempt the embolization procedure and see if we can melt the subdural hematoma that way and avoid surgery. And those who have received surgery but have recurrent bleeds. We're seeing success certainly early on in both those patient groups. And it's probably because it acts through the same fashion, the same mechanism by drying up and devascularizing, taking away the blood supply to this hematoma, you literally take away the lifeblood to it and it will heal itself in the process. Well, I want to apologize to you because I got so interested in what we were talking about. I did want to hear that story because I think our listeners would appreciate it. It's really a a very telling moment of a lot of the things that we're talking about right here. When we, after you tell us that story, I've got a whole nother set of questions for you, but just give us a quick picture of how that happened and how you made some judgments about that and got the patient up there from, as I recall, he was in the islands. Sure. This is a patient who was uh, in the islands with his family. He had uh, tripped and fallen and sustained a pretty bad bruise to his face, but had also, he was taking blood thinners at the time, had also sustained a subdural hematoma and had had some difficulty moving one side of his body. And he had called uh, his cardiologist at the time who um, flew him back to New York and referred him to me. And when I saw him, I saw that he indeed had really that subacute kind of subdural hematoma, the type that had occurred a few days before presentation was pressing on the brain and starting to cause decline, but not something that needed to be emergently taken out. He was otherwise awake, he was alert, and he was speaking well, but he was clearly getting worse from the subdural hematoma and, and he needed something done. Again, 20 years ago, and I should say even you know, five years ago, yeah, yeah. I would have taken this out with surgery, but I spoke to him about this new procedure and, and were the first people worldwide to use it instead of surgery. I spoke to him about embolizing the subdural hematoma capsule and giving that a shot first because what I told him was, We've been doing the technique of embolizing what's called the middle meningeal artery. It's an artery that runs in the dura, the covering over the brain. We've been doing the technique for years for other pathologies like benign brain tumors. We've never employed it for subdural hematoma. We could speak from experience that the procedure was safe. And in terms of efficacy, we couldn't speak to it that early in the course. He was one of the first five patients in the world that I, I did this on. But we could tell him that it was safe and if it worked, it would prevent the need for surgery. And if it didn't work, he wouldn't be any worse for the wear. He could always get surgery if it didn't work, but it was essentially a a win-win opportunity. And I must say, like, like him and many of the other early patients who proceeded with this treatment, I commend their bravery. Um, They're really medical pioneers in this because they were amongst the first people in the world to try something new and, and go through with it. But thankfully for him, it worked. The embolization procedure dried up the subdural membrane And literally over the course of a couple of weeks, his subdural hematoma melted away and went away completely. He's back on his 
anticoagulation. He's back living a, a normal life. This is a, a very high-functioning executive, and he was able to prevent any open surgery, which, again, up until we did this procedure, he would have most certainly have received. Well, how does the anticoagulant work with the embolization process? That's uh, an interesting juxtaposition of uh, treatments. It is. You're oftentimes between a rock and a hard place with many patients who have subdural hematomas because they are typically on the elderly side and they need to be on things like aspirin or Coumadin for certain underlying problems and it's dangerous to take them off. Now, if we can stop an anticoagulant for anyone who has any type of bleeding in the brain, it's ideal. But if we can't, we can still do the embolization procedure. We can't do surgery on an anticoagulant, but we can do an embolization procedure because it's minimally invasive. It's through a needle stick in the leg. There's really no risk of somebody having a bleeding complication if they're on aspirin, for example, and getting this procedure. Indeed, we've even done this procedure on patients who have certain types of cancer and lymphoma and whose platelet levels are very low too low for them to get a craniotomy and open surgery, but not too low for them to just get a needle stick in the leg. So we've extended this procedure in a more off-label palliative fashion to those with significant cancer history whose uh, platelets will prevent them from getting any form of treatment besides watching and waiting. Well, you know, Dr. Nobman, I know that you're perhaps not aware of the very stimulating a couple of times you mentioned something that seems so disparate and so different, and that is you went into his brain through his leg. So now, you know, the natural thought about that is we would love to uh, love to hear about that because it's a, it's a very, a very big one. That, that would be a very important. How does that happen? What do you do to make that happen? Well, the leg is one of the safest areas to access the arteries in the body, specifically the femoral artery. And literally through a needle stick, you can access that artery and go backwards up it through the aorta and into the great vessels that lead to the blood vessels in the head and neck. And we put a catheter into the blood vessels of the head and neck and then put a very small, an even smaller catheter specifically into that blood vessel that feeds the subdural hematoma, what's called the middle meningeal artery. And although it, it sounds far away, and you're right, it, it technically is, it takes maybe 45 seconds to get up there and get to You're kidding me. That and is amazing. Yeah, yeah, that is totally the amazing. common site that we use. So yeah. you run up the aorta, and then what do you do? You go up the carotids? We go up the carotid artery and then into the external carotid artery, which is a blood vessel that feeds the, the face and the scalp. And the middle meningeal artery is a branch of the external carotid artery. We, we selectively navigate into that branch. Oh and then we're, we're right where we need to be. The entire procedure probably takes about 45 minutes. We're able to do it on some patients who are awake if they have risk factors for anesthesia, which, again, older patients typically have risk factors to getting general <sighs> anesthesia. It's amazing. If they have poor heart, poor lung, and we're able to do this procedure awake painless, it's stress-free, and patients go home the following day. Well, how do you, as the surgeon on the spot, visualize all that stuff? Now, we had a very interesting conversation with Dr. Kaplan about using the ultrasound and the MRI and so on, but how do you actually pull that all together? With uh, How do you visualize it? Everything is done under x-ray guidance. So angiography essentially means visualizing the blood vessels through x-ray and through contrast. So that's how we're navigating ourselves. We inject contrast into the blood vessels, and it's like a roadmap. And essentially, our tools are little catheters and wires that, similar to a video game, you navigate yourself up that roadmap to where you need to go. And so you're looking through what kind of device are you looking Because it's, it's a, uh, what kind of x-ray device are you looking through? We're looking right at a, at a monitor, a screen, and we have an x-ray that's looking through the front of the patient and through the side of the patient. 
And using both those 2D views, we're able to know in space where we are. Oh, my gosh. Our hands are are, are down by the femoral artery, but our eyes and head are looking up at the screen. And our hands are are doing the work, but we're not looking at our hands while we're working. We're looking directly at the screen to see what our instruments are doing and where we're going. Well, that is totally amazing. I mean, I know you hear this all the time because it's just, I'm so appreciative of you taking the time to come on and tell us about this because it's so groundbreaking when you think about it. You think of all the celebrities that have died on a skiing accident, you know, and they had hit their head out in Vail and uh, never made it back and died as a consequence because no one really knew what to do with them. Uh, because the injury was such a low ball injury, they didn't have the acuity that really required surgery, and then they go home and die somehow. So this is terribly interesting. Now, I'm going to take a break here, and we're going to have a little word from our sponsors. But the question I'm going to ask you when we get back, Dr. Knopman, is please tell us a little more about that recovery thing. We've got, we got the identifying the person. We got them through the air. We got them in. The, we've actually done some of the surgery with, with you. I mean, visualized it. Now we come back. What I want to do is hear about the challenges and difficulties with the recovery experience that you've experienced and some of the cautions and thoughts that would help others who, who may need this kind of procedure uh, sooner rather than later. So, folks, we'll be back in just a moment. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications and our brief hospitalizations, arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professionals. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSite for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot. They get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash cbj yeah that's core brain journal cbj friends welcome back to dr jared Knoppen, right up there in beautiful new york city at the wild cornell medical brain and spine center with an unusual remarkably world-changing technique and we've we've taken from the patient identifying we've separated acute from subacute and chronic We've walked him a little bit through. We've actually taken a little bit of an imaginary tour through the arteries all the way up through the carotids and the middle meningeal artery. And now we want to get down to a couple of things. One is, what are the issues that sometimes you might experience that you think people need to be aware of in the recovery process? What are any difficulties that you would anticipate that you always warn people about, that they want to think about? And then what were are some of the 
varieties of um, beneficial outcomes that you've had that would be of interest? Well, one of the best things about the technique and one of the reasons I, I got so excited by seeing it work and being able to offer it is that the process, the recovery, the perioperative period in general, everything surrounding this procedure is so much easier on the patient than our traditional open surgical treatments. Again, this is a pathology. This is a process that occurs in elderly patients. Elderly patients do not always have the wherewithal to tolerate much invasive procedures. Relatively simple things when done in someone who's 70 or 80, they can result in unforeseen uh, complications and they don't have always the youthfulness to recover from things as quickly. So recovery from this procedure is essentially nil, essentially none. Especially if we're able to do the procedure on somebody without anesthesia, there's not even the need to metabolize anesthesia. There's no tiredness or lethargy for a day or two. It's literally recovering from a needle stick in the leg. Patients undergo this procedure, which again takes about 45 minutes to an hour. They stay overnight for observation and they go home the next day and they are told not to do anything exertional for about three days because they have a needle stick site that's healing, but there's literally zero recovery and zero uh, deconditioning that needs to be worked back from as mm. is with surgery. Now that's with amazing. surgery, patients get anesthesia, they get a burr hole or an opening in their skull, the blood gets drained, they stay in the ICU for a day or two, they have to be bed bound for a day or two. Air can get in the brain just by virtue of opening it up. Elderly patients don't do very well after brain surgery when air's in the brain. A lot of unforeseen things can occur. There's also issues of potentially wound infection at a later date, causing bleeding by manipulating something inside during surgery. All these things are, are completely removed from the equation with an endovascular option. And that's why I'm particularly excited about it, because this is a patient population that benefits extraordinarily from an endovascular option compared to a surgical one. It's amazing. I mean, I was anticipating that you would say, you know, they had this happen or that happen. You're basically saying there is no recovery. I mean, when you said that, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's because when you think about any surgical procedure, it doesn't matter really what it is. You start thinking about what's going to happen to that patient. What are they going to go through once they go home? What do they have to recover from? What do they have to deal with? And, you know, <laughs> and for you to say there is no recovery. You know, it's pretty amazing. Maybe just being careful a little bit. Now, the other thing that does I want to hear a little more about this is what are the cautionary notes you have when you're working with a person who is on anticoagulants? How do you do you have a process for working with them in that regard? What or is it pretty much just go back to it and don't worry about it? In general, when we're doing an endovascular treatment, a minimally invasive treatment, the anticoagulation doesn't change the protocol that much because recovering from a needle stick, whether you're on blood thinners or not, is pretty much the same. The major precaution we have is that because we're going through blood vessels, we always have to be cautious about what the access is like to the head and neck. Is there plaque? Is there atherosclerosis? Again, as we age, we all build up plaque in our blood vessels. And mm -hmm. to go through that plaque or to go past that with wires and catheters, there could be a potential risk to that. So the biggest risk of the procedure and what I quote patients is the risk with any angiogram, any type of endovascular procedure, and that's having a damaged blood vessel or something flick off from the blood vessel and go to the brain like mm -hmm. a, a little plaque mm -hmm. or a stroke. That makes sense. I quote people a less than 1% risk. Um, mm -hmm. We do this a lot and, and, and we have a high volume of elderly patients that we treat for lots of different reasons, but that's the main risk that we worry about whenever we put a catheter into someone. 
I think that 1% risk is lower than the cumulative risk of open surgery given for, for roughly the same patient. But that's the main thing that we, that we consider. The other thing is the middle meningeal artery, the artery that we do embolize. In some patients can have what's called anastomoses or connections to other important arteries in the body, such as the blood vessels that feed the eye. So we always keep an eye out for that, no pun intended, to mm-hmm. look to make sure there's nothing unusual. There's no unusual connections to the, to the eye or to the vision. And again, that's something that in an experienced, well-trained center is not hard to do, but it's something that needs to be done if, if someone's going to do this procedure. So the embolization covers that particular artery in the feed to the chronic ongoing feed of the hematoma. But what happens to a peripheral circulation to that area? It takes care of it. So it doesn't matter if that clot remains there forever. It's not a problem. Or does it clot up and then the artery itself heals? Do you have any knowledge about how that works? By shutting down the artery that seems to feed the hematoma capsule, we believe we're shutting down the input for that bleeding and rebleeding pathway. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, the subdural hematoma, the actual blood clot itself, underneath the dura and on top of the brain, that will resorb, that will melt over time. The yeah. natural history of a subdural hematoma is to go away with time. Body absorbs blood, any type of blood in the brain, if it doesn't continuously bleed or rebleed. So by interrupting that pathway, that nidus, that source for these rebleeding episodes, the body does resorb the blood over time. And that can take time. It can take about two weeks till we see the hematoma start to contract. And generally by six weeks, we see it contract nearly all the way down, greater than 50%, if not 100%. So again, we only offer this procedure to patients where we believe we have that kind of time window. Mm -hmm. Somebody who needs something done, but doesn't need something done emergently. They have the opportunity to watch the hematoma melt away with time. And again, most of our chronic and subacute subdural hematoma patients have that kind of time. Well, it's just amazing because as you think about it, opens up so many opportunities for so many individuals who really see themselves just plain old going downhill and have no hope about where they're going to go next. I mean, it's just and neurologic impairment is one of those things you just, you're going to be limping, you're going to have obvious neurologic impairments, but your whole style of life changes dramatically negatively. Uh, whereas it's something true. like this, you just, you can, you can actually go back to being a regular human being for the remaining years you have left. It's true. And subdural hematoma is only be going to become a larger problem in society. By 2030, it's predicted to be the most common neurosurgical condition in the United States because of the aging population. <coughs> this is not a rare disease. This is not something that only affects a very few people. We, we, many of us have relatives or friends or know someone who knows someone who's suffered from this, and only more people will suffer from it over time by virtue of the fact that we're all living longer. So coming up with a minimally invasive option for this is going to have a major, I think, public health impact. Thus far, preliminarily, after about 70 patients who've done this procedure on, we've seen a greater than 90% success rate, which means over 90% of our patients that we've done this on, we've been able to avoid surgery. And these are patients who traditionally, up until we did this procedure, would have gotten surgery. So we think we're making a major dent in this pathology and a major impact on most of these patients. And I, I personally am very optimistic and think it has the potential to revolutionize the way we treat subdural hematomas going forwards. Thank you so much for this presentation. I mean, it's inspirational, really. And I, there's so many opportunities there for so many people who suffer with these. And, and uh, I can imagine exactly what you're saying. I mean, I haven't looked at the data, of course, because it's just not on my, my skill set. But 
the bottom line is it's totally reasonable that it's going to become worse because as we age, those arteries are going to be aging and, and they're going to be more uh, potentially damaged. So let's take a moment to close with where people can get a hold of you. We'll have it in the show notes, folks. And it'll be Wild Cornell Medicine Brain and, and Spine Center. Is there any specific way they can get tied in directly to uh, this kind of procedure with you personally? Since we've started this, we've had a lot of people reach out to us. So anyone at Cornell is pretty well aware of, of this trial and, okay. and this, uh, this procedure that we're doing. So it's not difficult to get teed up very quickly. Okay, good. Well, all I can say is thank you. I mean, you know, if there's uh, if you have any other developments about this, we've just enjoyed the conversation. It's been very interesting to me. I'm a complete novitiate with this kind of material. Uh, you can be a physician, but and there are a lot of physicians out there that have no knowledge of this material. And it's going to be help the medical population out there. And it's going to help uh, individuals who listen to us because we really do focus on on brain and health and, and uh, longevity and make it through these adversities that we all experience. So thank you so much again. This was Dr. Jared Knopman from New York City at the Wild Cornell Medicine Brain and Spine Center. Fantastic show. Really appreciate you coming on board. Thank you, Dr. Parker. I really appreciate the opportunity. You have a great evening. Same to you. Take thank care. you. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.